So the challenges are really very, very big. However, the learning effect is also very big. So working in this kind of different setting allows you to develop a lot faster as a manager, also as a person. And that's really a very, very good way to shape yourself up and become a very good international manager. So I can only advise everybody to try to work in a very different environment, whether it's foreigner in Japan or Japanese people outside of Japan, because this is really a kind of booster of your career development or your management skill development, because you always develop fast in a foreign system. Hello everyone and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia Bukelman. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful, practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in-depth cultural context needed to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. Today, I get to share a conversation that I had with Professor Parissa Hagirian. Parissa is Professor of International Management at Sophia University in Tokyo, Japan. She has lived and worked in Japan since 2004 and is an internationally renowned expert in international management practices with a focus on Japan. She has published numerous books, academic papers, and articles on the topic of Japanese management. In addition to academics and research, Professor Hagirian advises major multinational companies on intercultural understanding and cooperation, and she coaches top global managers for success when working across cultures by providing new perspectives and skills. Professor Hagirian is a regular keynote speaker at conferences and corporate events in Europe, Japan, and Asia. To learn more about her background and work, be sure to check out her website or LinkedIn page, both of which are linked in the description of this episode. My name is Parissa Agirian. I'm originally from Austria, from the south of Austria, and I studied Japanese and business. I already came to Japan more than 30 years ago as a student, and I really quite liked it. And once I graduated, I decided to uh, become a university professor after being a consultant and a journalist before that. And I, uh, I'm specialized now on Japanese management. I actually investigate differences between Japanese management processes and mainly European or Western management processes. And I have been working in Japanese organizations since I was 20. So I've had more than 25 to 30 years experience in various companies and universities in Japan. And yeah, I can say that I'm kind of researching and working in Japan on the same topic and this is actually a little bit of an ethnographic idea so while I'm working at the Japanese organization I'm improving my knowledge on it and I'm also teaching a lot about it in companies of course in universities and yeah to anyone who's interested in it. So how did you end up choosing Japan in the first place? What drew you to the country? It was actually a bit more an accidental choice. I wanted to do a language. I was really good at languages in school. And where I come from in the 1980s, everyone, like the girls, studied English and Spanish. And I found that a bit boring. And I didn't want to be a translator either. So 
I went to Vienna and I chose Japanese, which I didn't have any idea about, but I just realized I wanted to do something difficult and it was really difficult. <laughs> Actually, I'm still taking lessons every week after 30 years. So it's something you really have to work on. So it's a real job to study Japanese and I really enjoyed it. I especially enjoyed learning kanji and the beauty of the language. And then um, I realized I also wanted to do something a little bit more practical than just Japanese studies. And I started to do a business degree. And when I did that 30 years ago, nobody else did. So it was actually quite unique and people did not find this very clever. I remember that really well. But in the end, it turned out to be a good choice because I can really say I'm a business professor that has a business PhD and I've also have, I'm also a Japanese management scientist or management researcher and on top I'm also an anthropologist so I can also look at both ways of researching Japan and combine that and I think this is my competitive advantage. Yeah definitely setting yourself up to be unique would be very important I can see. Yes it's also it's also important for me to not only look at one side you see in studying culture and studying business is not the same and doing only one thing is actually I mean, I cannot imagine talking about Japanese management if I had only one one degree. So for me, it's very important that I can look at it from a cultural perspective and from a practical business perspective. And I think that is really an important factor to explain what's going on in a Japanese company, especially if you're not Japanese. So then what drew you to pursue becoming a professor instead of maybe just... I, I've encountered a lot of people who've gone full into either the business world or academia, but what kind of drew you to do a little bit of both and manage both of them? Well, in the end, I had to work for my degree. So my parents didn't finance my, my studies. So I, I worked all the time until I graduated. And I spent four years in Japan while I was studying. So I graduated when I was 30, which was really late. And everyone, including me, was very worried about my career. And the first offer I got was actually at the university. So somebody said, okay, yeah, there is a PhD position in the marketing department. And I didn't really want to do it, to be honest. So I just walked in and said, hi. And I didn't even have a CV. And they said, okay, yeah, you can start there. And I said, all right, yeah, I've worked so much. And I worked, and I, I had two, two degrees and a job. And I wanted to do something that is a little bit more relaxed. And I thought the university was actually a more easy place to work, which was true in a way because I had only a 20-hour position and I started doing it. And I was initially only intending to do it for a bit and then looking for a real job. And I really started to like the work and became really interested in it. And at that time, it was very, very difficult to combine business studies and Japanese studies or, let's say, cultural studies, humanities with social studies. There were actually two, two teams and people had really a lot of prejudice. But in the end, I decided that I'm going to be the one who's combining this, which was really quite hard at the beginning. So then what are some of those business concepts that you've researched, that you've experienced firsthand, that you think would be most important for people to be aware of before they start working in a Japanese environment. Yeah, I mean, one thing that is really important to know that is it is really different. You know, a lot of people believe, okay, yeah, you're going to China, you're going to Asia, you're going wherever, can't be so different from here. That's I hear this quite a lot, actually. In fact, it can be really different. I mean, you know this yourself. 
So what the main difference is, is that the structure of the Japanese company is very much based on the structure of the Japanese group as such, which is very different from groups in other countries. So in most Asian countries, the family group is the most relevant group. So I'm working with somebody I trust that makes it easier to do business. And the person I trust is usually somehow who is emotionally connected with me or who I have some power over because this person belongs to my peer group. And that's usually a family. In most Asian countries, that's the case. In all, in Chinese countries, in, in the Middle East. In Japan, however, people can form groups that behave like families, but they aren't really families. And that's actually quite unique. So you can say we are very trustful and loyal to each other like family members, but we are no family members. And that is actually quite different. Yeah. Whereas in a Western group, people join for personal reasons, which are, of course, everywhere somehow a reason to join anything. But basically, people join for reasons that where the group is supposed to fulfill a certain need. I want a certain position. I want prestige. I want money. So that's why I'm joining. And in Japan, many people join to be a member of a group and be a member of a prestigious group, which makes the group very powerful because all the people who are working there are in some ways very dedicated and really want to contribute to the group's success. But they are doing this in a different way than in the West. Yeah, Basically, the group idea and the group goal is most relevant and everyone is working towards that. And people have a very strong connection with each other inside this group. So it doesn't sound really different, but at the end of the day, these differences are really defining how people manage and how people act in a company. And it's very different. So one particular difference is that in a Japanese group, you are a member, or you're not a member. So you belong or you don't belong and you can't just come and go. You're supposed to stay for as long as you can, hopefully a lifetime. You're treated very well while you're there, but you're also expected to dedicate yourself really to the group's goals. And that's, of course, reflecting very much on how people behave yeah, in the firm. First of all, they learn. They have much more time to learn the job. They can learn the job in the company. They have a much better relationship with older members because they need to learn from them. They are, in the beginning, maybe a little bit more passive because they need to really listen and watch and see what others are doing and work their way up in the company so they get socialized, like into a family, yeah? And that's actually very different from a Western group, for example, where you walk in and you have your own little thing to do and nobody else is supposed to do it. And you have to take a very dominant role and you have to make sure everyone knows you. You have to sell yourself. You have to sell your achievements. And that actually creates a very different way of working. And if these two groups work together, um, it is really often very difficult. Yeah? So cross-cultural conflict is much more common than most people think. And people don't change so easily. You see, you cannot say, okay, now you work in a Western firm as a Japanese, behave like a Western person or the other way around. Because deep inside, we really believe that our system is always the best. Yeah. And it's very, very difficult and a very, let's say, challenging experience to see that other groups have very different premises and they still do really well. So that's one thing you can definitely learn in Japan if you're not Japanese. I had to learn this too, and it was actually not easy. What are some examples of the fallouts of those sorts of situations where somebody comes into a company expecting things to look the way that they did in their home culture, let's say a Western culture, versus what the expectations would be placed on them in the Japanese firm? What's some of the mismatches there? So a classic example would be a job interview. Yeah, I'm training a lot of my students to get jobs. 
And one thing I would tell them, it's really important who you talk to. And they say, yes, but if I, for example, apply in a Western company and I still am interviewed by a Japanese person, this is not the same. And I'm not quite sure about that. So if you want to join a Japanese company, you want to become a member. So you're joining to support the growth. You're joining because you want to be a good part of a bigger thing and help everybody and be accepted, be integrative, be integrated. Yeah. And communicate that so when you have a job interview it might be a good idea to show some modesty yeah and say look i might not be so good at that yeah but i will try very hard yeah i will try to be a really good supportive part of this firm i'm doing my best these kind of things are very important to say them yeah however if you for example are western or you work for a western company you wouldn't say oh i'm very modest because the interviewer may actually believe you and find that a little bit strange so you have to really sell yourself yeah you have to say i can do this i'm good to hire because i'm the best at doing this and i can help you with that so basically you present yourself as an asset to the company and because of you the company can do better it sounds very similar but in fact it's not exactly the same so when you are actually saying the wrong thing to the wrong interviewer, you may have some problems here. And that's a classic situation that people in interviews come across as too pushy, too full of themselves, yeah, especially if they speak to Japanese interviewers. And on the other hand, Japanese people being interviewed by Westerners saying, hmm, my English may not be so good, even though they speak fluent English, uh, may be perceived as a little bit, let's say, too shy or not outgoing enough to, to take a prominent role in the firm. And these kind of misunderstandings are just happening everywhere. Yeah. So I can give an example. I did uh, job trainings with my students a while ago. And one student was asked, what is your weakness? And it was a Japanese student. And he said, when we are in discussions, I always push my opinion too much. So I'm not really listening often to others. I really think my opinion is very good. And I tell everybody. And I thought, okay, yeah, that might be a weakness if you're in a Japanese context. But in a Western context, that's not a weakness at all. That's actually something that people find pretty good. And you have to be really careful who you tell your story. Yeah. So when you're behaving like this, it might be a really good thing to do in a Japanese group, but in another group, in a, in a non-Japanese group, this may come across as weak or maybe not decisive enough, and that may create a different image of you and have a negative impact on your career. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And it's a good thing to be aware of when you want to, to influence people a different way. It, it helps to understand what they're looking for from you. Definitely. Yeah. And I think it's also really good to clarify that and say, look, uh, if, if you ask me as a, let's say, non-Japanese person, I'm telling you this, knowing that in Japan people have a different idea. Yeah? So explanations may help. Of course, the problem is if you first work in a foreign environment, you don't know these differences because most companies nowadays look very modern and the same. And especially if everyone speaks English, it's not very clear that the expectations are very different. And that is can be quite misleading yeah and many japanese companies of course are international they're very global and that's not really a surprise because this system allowing all kinds of people to enter the company yeah and having the trust that everyone who enters is like a family member allows also the company to go international very quickly and become very very big and very strong yeah because if you only hire people you're related to, you have a limited choice of people you can hire. That's one reason why many Asian companies in other countries aren't 
growing so quickly. There are some exceptions, but in general, we can say the Japanese companies have less problems doing that because they can do that. Yeah. But then again, of course, the cross-cultural aspects on a personal level are still playing a very important role. We must not really forget that. Yeah. So then what are some ways that people can learn to be more effective in building those interpersonal relationships, building that trust on a one-to-one or group level once they have hopefully successfully entered the Japanese company? Yeah, I mean, that's very true. I mean, sometimes, you know, you, ha- you always have two choices. You can do the things or everything in a company the way you would do it back home if you work in Japan, for example, yeah? Or you can say, okay, Japanese people may do it differently. I try to find out how they do it or I try it. I mean, our main intention is to do what we always do. <laughs> people don't really want to change so much. That's quite human. And uh, we also have the tendency to believe what we do is best, especially as Westerners, that I really have to say. So one way to do it or one way to deal with these differences is, first of all, look at what is the company expecting you to do. Many companies in Japan hire non-Japanese people to do non-Japanese things. Yeah. So you are actually hired to communicate with the outside. You are hired to do PR for Western country. So many things you do or need to do should be not Japanese or should be actually something that is not what Japanese people are usually doing. So that's one option. In this case, you can say, look, I'm hired to do my own thing as back as I do it back home. And this is what I do. However, if you work in a Japanese company as a foreigner who is expected to be a normal in that sense, uh, Japanese member, then of course it's it's getting more tricky because people realize you are a foreigner, but they still expect you somehow to behave the same. Yeah, and many behaviors like being too direct or saying no or saying hey, this is not my job, something like this, may come across as really rude. So as a foreigner, I think it's always a good idea to first ask why people do that. Yeah, that's always a good question. Sometimes people give explanations that do not really make a lot of sense but still there is an explanation and it might also be a really good idea to just go along yeah and follow the crowd and say okay I have I would never do this back home but I'm doing this back here because I am really trying to experience what's going on around me and maybe find also a little bit more of an emotional explanation for that and you can do that that's what I did when I first came and it really helped me Because I realize the way I do things is just creating so much stress for everybody and for myself that it can't be right. Yeah. And this is, of course, a very, very difficult experience to say whatever I learned or what I did is not the right way to do it. We do it now differently. But that's also one major reason why you work in a cross-cultural environment. I mean, you really want to be exposed. So that's the other option. And if you're very experienced, yeah, if you've done this for a while and you know your own style and you know the local style, then you should come to a certain level that allows you to choose the best style for each situation. This is the so-called contingency approach. You have a certain situation, a certain problem. Let's say you want to sell to Japanese clients or you want to sell to American clients and you have a goal. You say, I want to sell. I want to make this deal. So what's the best way to go about? Yeah. Do I have to do it the Japanese way or do I have to do it the American way? And if you are experienced enough and you know both ways really well, you can say for this situation, I choose that 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 way or the Japanese way and that will be more successful than my classic way. Yeah. 
So this is the level that we should all reach. Yeah. The problem is that we only learn by mistake. So it's actually really quite difficult to improve here. And it's not only that we learn by mistakes, but we also have to experience a lot of stress coming with that. So we make a mistake, we find out, okay, this is not right. Let's do something else. But we have to deal with all these emotions that come up and that is really not so easy. Yeah. So I think it's a very emotional and extremely stressful learning process. And that is the beauty of it on the one hand, but at the same time, it's the biggest problem. So yeah, you need to go through that and afterwards getting better. It's getting better for a while, I guess. Yeah, yeah I just had a conversation with somebody else who talked about how mindsets are so important. So if you can kind of make sure that your mindset surrounding making those cultural mistakes is about learning instead of just focusing on doing something wrong and embarrassing yourself. I can see how that would go a long way. I think it's also important to kind of reframe what you're doing here. For me, when I first came to Japan, I had already a degree in Japanese studies. I'd been in Japan for three years. I spoke Japanese and still I worked in Kyushu for two years at a very traditional Japanese university. And I was the first foreign woman they hired. And everything was in Japanese and I found that really stressful. And I was very embarrassed to make all these mistakes and I made every single mistake. I mean, people just had so much fun when I just entered the room. And then I realized I, I need to get better. I need to do this and learn so much. And I was feeling more and more stressed. And then one day I went to the bookshop and I found a magazine with some American actress on the cover page and the title of this magazine story was one woman circus yeah and uh, it was some comedian i can't really remember anyway so i thought to myself oh i've got a one woman circus here myself you know and then afterwards i decided okay if this is a circus then it should be really a fun circus and i instead of walking into the office being very stressed yeah saying oh my god what's gonna happen today I walked in and said, hello, one woman circus is here. That's not what I said, but that's what I thought. <laughs> and people um, started to, I mean, we had a lot of fun. And I really had a lot of fun too, because I made so many mistakes and everyone in the office had a laugh and it created a really much better atmosphere because I kind of reframed of what I did. Yeah, I wasn't so stressed anymore. Yeah, I was more like an entertainer for everybody, <laughs> showing them what chaotic things a foreigner can do in Japan. And in fact, it really de-stressed me. Yeah, And in the end, I learned a lot more because people felt also more comfortable telling me things and explaining things to me. And, uh, and, and the whole atmosphere became a little bit of a comical atmosphere, and that really helped. So it's really an important thing to have a certain idea about how you go there. Yeah, it shouldn't be too let's say, competitive in the beginning, because that's not the best way to go about in Japan in general, but a very integrative idea of being somebody who is here to help and still not perfect. Yeah. So I think reframing yourself or your idea of working in a foreign environment may really help. Yeah, definitely. It sounds like you were able to kind of move away from maybe worrying about being incompetent to cultivating an identity as being eccentric instead. Yeah, uh, in some ways, eccentric. And also, I, I, I really, my, my credit is always, I'm really okay making one mistake or each mistake one time. 
if I do it twice, I should start to think about it. And if it's three times, then there's something wrong. But basically, one mistake is always fine. I forgive myself that. And that really helped because you make a lot of mistakes. You cannot know. And even today, I've been here so many years, I still do things that I realize are not right. And sometimes I don't even know why. And if you don't have really good friends, Japanese friends, who can take a side and say, look, what, what's happening here? What should I do now? Then it's still very stressful. So it need you need to have a certain attitude to deal with all this. Yeah. And if you don't, if you get too aggressive and too stressed about it, then it will never be a, a valuable experience. Yeah, and that's a big problem. A lot of people I know also get too detached from it. And that's not a really good development either. So then do you have any other advice for people on how to deal with all of the stress? Yeah, as a, I think it's always good to take breaks. Yeah. I mean, I have a, a students, a lot of foreign students, and sometimes they feel really stressed. And it's not so much that Japan is a difficult place as such. It's you're far away from home. You, you have a culture shock at some point. Yeah. It is tiring to speak a foreign language, even if it's only English all day long for many people. So you need to rest. Yeah. And I, I really, I really advise people to, first of all, once in a while or one day or half a day, just stay at home and do something in their own language, watch whatever TV or call home or just kind of leave the foreign country out of your life for half an hour or for a half a day, even better, and just take a real emotional rest and then really rest. Yeah. Another thing that is very important is that you go back to being a tourist, that you're trying to, to have a, uh, interests or hobbies that are connected to the country, that you're doing more sightseeing, that really helps too. But it is really important to take any kind of stressful feeling you may have to seriously and deal with it. Yeah, ignoring it is never a good way. Yeah, That is in every cross-culture situation in the long run a big problem. Mm -hmm. I think that's such good advice. Then apart from sort of this mindset around incorporating people into the structure of the company instead of jamming people into their specific role and just letting them go free, like maybe in a more Western context. Are there any other differences that you've noticed about how Japanese companies operate versus might, might be a little bit more common in the West? I mean, a Japanese company is a workplace in which you're, of course, expected to dedicate yourself, yeah? But at the same time, and that's what a lot of people don't know, a Japanese workplace is really a workplace that also takes really good care of people, yeah? So you have, of course, a lot of financial allowances or care by a Japanese company. And, you know, this is also one thing that is really important that I personally find very caring. Yeah, it is a very safe place in that sense to work. Yeah, so because, of course, the Japanese law is not allowing to fire people very easily like in other countries. So there are certain fears you don't have to have here. And I find that very relaxing yeah. because I, I used to work on contract jobs at the university before I started to work at my current job. And I can remember this as being a very stressful experience. Of course, I worked very, very much. I was afraid of not getting my next contract or not being prolonged or whatever. And in Japan, you can basically just work. You don't have to worry too much about things that happen around you. So in that sense, it is easier to work here because you basically just have to do what you have to do and then you'll be fine. And you don't constantly have to sell yourself and defend yourself and promote yourself all the time, which I have to say I find really stressful. That also makes teamwork much easier because people know the person I work with is not necessarily a rival. Yeah, 
I can share my information without having a problem. I can work on the same project for 10 years and everyone may even be here in 10 years. In most cases, that's that's happening. So there's a different way of working with each other. And I, I have to say now, when I go back to Europe, of course, I work in a university setting, which is not really the same. But I'm always not, I, I realize I'm not used to this competitive environment in that sense anymore. And of course, Westerners and Western companies believe that's the best way to work because that's the most, we can get the most out of people if they are competitors with each other. But um, I'm not so sure about that, you know. I mean, if you create a really strong team and people are not constantly worrying about the future, yeah, and nowadays people worry a lot in Western companies, that may even create better results, yeah. So there's a lot of, ideas and processes in Japan that are really very different from the West and they are very successful and we couldn't even imagine that. Yeah. Another idea, for example, that is really very different is that the Western idea of decision making and power is usually an individual decision maker. Yeah. And that's so strong inside us, we cannot imagine that not one person is in charge. And if there's no one in charge, we feel extremely stressed. Yeah. Whereas here in Japan, there's always many people in charge. In fact, unless you own the company, nobody has really all the power. And that um, creates a lot of, um, let's say, difficult situations or challenges. For example, it's always time consuming to come to conclusion in Japan because everybody has to be involved. But at the same time, when a once a decision is made, it's settled. There's not, not no one usually who says I'm against it or I'm boycotting it or I'm not doing my share or something like that because everyone is carrying it and everyone has been asked and everyone has been involved and people feel quite safe about doing things that they have decided together so you see there's a lot of premises that we have in the west that are exactly the opposite here the value system is very different too so I find that really interesting and it's really challenging as a manager to work in these different environments and um, yeah, that makes it very, very exciting. But of course, it's not always easy, as I said before. You have to really go through certain processes that you may not experience at home, for sure. Yeah. So then kind of not having that competitive environment where you're always trying to prove yourself and always trying to show your, your competence, your competitive advantages, how do people successfully cultivate their careers and advance their careers in a Japanese context? What does that take? Yeah. So basically what we can see here, the competitiveness is focused on the competitors yeah, outside the company. So people are inside. Of course, we cannot say this is happening everywhere. Yeah. I mean, um, of course, every company consists of people, their feelings and relationships and whatever. But the overall idea is that we are grouped together in Japan. We fight against our competitors like a little army and we are really very strong unit. So internal issues shouldn't be always the focus. Yeah? And this is, of course, possible because people have very similar contracts. They get um, similar salaries. They know exactly where they stand in their careers, how much they get. They know what money they will make in five years. And if you want to advance your career, it's in a classic Japanese company, it's not so easy to jump over these levels simply because you're the best. Yeah. So one thing to do is, of course, you can be very good in a Japanese company and everyone will acknowledge that, but you may not necessarily get paid more or be promoted first. Yeah. So that's something you have to deal with. Okay. But what is important is that you can develop an emotional power position in this group as being, let's say, very talented or very um, a good problem solver or just 
very clever or whatever. And everyone knows that without, and everyone would say that too, maybe. So it would be a much more on an emotional level than let's say on a compensation level. Yeah. On the other hand, of course, at a certain level in Japanese organizations, most talented people move on. Not everyone can become CEO. And at that level, you can actually see that difference. Yeah. So it's also a little bit of a rumor, some kind of idea that Japanese companies promote anyone to any level. That's not true. I think after a certain 20 or 30 years in a company, they know really very well because they are always together and they know people for a long time who is talented and who isn't. So if you go to the CEO level, the choices are usually pretty good. And that's the difference. So you have to have this patience. Yeah. And of course, in a Western company, you can promote your career a lot more by changing jobs. Yeah. By applying for internal position, by lobbying yeah, within the company to make sure that you get noticed. And that's, of course, a different idea. So you're much more self-dependent or rely, uh, responsible for your own career. Whereas in Japan, the company traditionally will take care of that. Yeah. And of course, the Japanese company has not really a lot of experience in letting good people go because traditionally they would stay. Yeah. And I have really never seen a Japanese company who has a really good system that allows people to come and go or does exit interviews or something like that. Yet every time somebody leaves, it's like, oh my God, what happened now? And I'm, I just think, okay, this is maybe not the first time somebody leaves a company, but there's no expectation of that. Yeah. So the expectation is always we're together, we stay together and nobody's leaving. And if people leave, it's of course a big problem. And in the long run, I'm not quite sure um, if you know, there's more and more people changing jobs in Japan. Of course, it's not a number that is in some in any way comparable to a Western country. But for Japan, the numbers are pretty high lately. And the question will be what will happen if better people leave and find jobs where they get paid more, for example, because the labor shortage is taking its toll on everybody in, in Japan. And uh, that is, of course, a scenario that Japanese companies are, in my opinion, not really well prepared for. Yeah. So at this point, how do you see companies trying to cope with that labor shortage? Because we all know it's only going to be getting more intense as the years go by. Yeah, it is a se- this is the serious problem. And this will move more in Japan than, I don't know, 20 or 30 years of women's movement or whatever. <laughs> you know, the point is there isn't enough people. I mean, lately, I think we can roughly say there's two open jobs for every job seeker, especially in the white collar area. But it's the same every in every area. There's been a lot of discussion about um, a very famous story of a convenience store a franchisee who closed the shop at night and got sued by the convenience store company and said, look, I can't find anyone who works every night yeah, until the morning. And they have, for example, changed the rules now and allow people to close in some cases because there isn't, there aren't enough people who can do this job. So this problem is in every company on every level. And yes, so basically what the government is trying to do is trying to make it easy for foreigners to come in. Yeah, Japan is an island, so it's easy to control immigration. And then again, of course, trying to bring people back. Older people are supposed to come back. Women are in, actually encouraged to enter the workforce. But in the long run, yes, there needs to be a lot of strategies at the same time. Yeah. Uh, all kinds of digitalization processes must, of course, be faster. Robots are a solution for very many companies, especially in the manufacturing area. So, um, but it is going to be the biggest issue. And this will have a lot, much stronger social effect on everything 
on the, or whether women work or how long people work, where they worked, what kind of jobs they did within before. Yeah. And it has good and points too in some ways. Of course, for my students, I can tell them you will definitely find a job. I'm quite happy about that. And there's a lot of people in Japan who really want to work longer than their official retirement age. In most companies, it, I mean, companies at 65, they want to work until 70 or longer. But uh, of course, for the economy as a whole, it's a problem. Because if you don't have enough people, your company can't grow. So Japanese company will have to integrate more outsiders in the long run. There's no other way around that. And we'll have to develop processes to do this well. And many Japanese companies are not yet prepared for doing this. Yeah. So on the various levels, on the structural level, because the Japanese company system is a layer system, you have to really enter very young and then move up. And that's, of course, an investment of 10 or 20 years. Not every foreigner wants to do that. And then, of course, also on a cultural level, yeah? What does an international Japanese company look like? What is the global Japanese firm? I mean, there's many aspects of Japanese management that are really wonderful and that should be international i think yeah apart from um, just in time or production um and that's really an important factor too i talked to um people in my home country in austria two years ago who were taken over by a japanese company their company was bought uh, by a japanese firm and i they said they were really stressed and really afraid of being taken over because that's what you are in a western country if you're taking over something drastic will happen and the first thing the japanese new owners did they came in and said don't worry nobody will lose your job and even old people will not lose their jobs and everyone was very surprised and they created a very positive atmosphere that people especially older than 50 were feeling very welcome and their experience was very appreciated and I talked to a lot of people in that firm and they said it's much better than before <laughs> because we feel much more motivated and they brought in this Japanese idea of it together and it was taken care of and that really went very well outside Japan too so especially now during the recession when many people are very worried about the future that's there are some models in Japanese management that might be really beneficial to export yeah, definitely. Do you have any other aspects of Japanese management that you think are especially beneficial or would be good fits for other more international companies around the world? I mean, there's lots of things that I like. Of course, I am a fan of Japanese management, so I, I would say I'm a bit biased and I really do prefer to work in a Japanese company after having worked a few years in a Western firm. But what I really did like is, first of all, is the idea of people staying together in a team and even if there is conflict that's my that's my personal favorite yeah uh, people are still trying to make up or manage every conflict but they want to come to a, a level that they can continue work with each other yeah so whatever happens people are trying to i wouldn't say make up but at least have a decent way of dealing with each other even if they disagree with each other or even if they may not really like each other and this is allowing everyone to continue work yeah. And if you work in a Western company, there's so many people who have conflicts, which we in the West think is normal and it must be and uh, whatever. But at the same time, this is, first of all, taking a lot of our energy and a lot of time. And the second thing is that it actually hinders a lot of things. It blocks very many things. I remember when I worked in Germany for a year, 
more than 10 years ago, there were two people in the team who didn't want to cooperate and they couldn't work together and everyone accepted that. And I thought, hey, are you getting paid here or what is this? Yeah, I mean, this is a professional job. You are supposed to do things that benefit the firm and not do your own personal ego things or whatever here. And that's really one thing that I like very much. I think this is really a strength of the Japanese firm. And I think in the West, we don't realize how much conflict actually takes from us and how much it costs. I once went with a group of Japanese managers to Europe and one person said, who is paying for all this fighting? <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> but it costs a lot of money. Yeah, And this is, of course, I mean, to say that the Japanese company is always peaceful is not right. But even if you have a conflict, you try at least to continue on a level that allows everyone to continue work with each other. Yeah. And that is really one thing that many Western companies should have a look at. That's my personal opinion. But then we have other, many other things too, you know, trying to create a strong unit, trying to create a strong relationship between employees. That's not always so popular in many Western companies. Japanese companies actually spending a lot of time and effort and money on making the team a very strong emotional unit as well. Yeah, they have a lot of events and parties and these kind of things that allow people to connect and create really this atmosphere of doing something or wanting to do something together. It can be really motivating to work in a Japanese team. Yeah? People always underestimate that. Yeah? And there's loads of foreigners who work for very many years like me in Japanese companies. So this is not only me. Um, there's people who've done this much longer than I have. So. so have you noticed any specific strategies that people employ to try to maintain that harmony? How do people cope with conflict in Japan? Well, I mean, of course, conflict in, in, in a Western sense is really confrontation. Yeah. So you say yes, I say no. And we have to come to a conclusion. And usually what we do in the West is we back up our ideas with arguments and say, I tell you this, I show you this data, I am right because of that and that and that. Yeah. In Pan, however, the overall idea is we are both in this and we both want to stay in this growth. So if we are too confrontational, it will blow up everything somehow. The Western idea is always, I can always leave. Yeah. So I can actually be much more aggressive. Yeah if I want to, but here, this is never a good idea because if you want to work together for 30 years, it's not a good idea to be too direct and confront each other too much. So what you do is you, if you disagree, you try to show disagreement in a way that might not be too direct. For example, saying, oh, I'm worried about that. Have you thought about this? This person may not like that or something like that, that is not too confrontational. And in the end, if there is a conflict and it gets emotional and confrontational, there's always the option of apologizing and saying, okay, let's forget about that because the rest of the team cannot continue work if you and I had such a conflict. So we need to kind of bury this and move on. And I have seen many times in Japan that if there are conflicts that are real conflicts, or at least maybe things that we wouldn't really consider a conflict, but in Japan are considered a conflict. The rest of the group pressures the parties to continue to, to, to solve the issue and allow everyone to continue. This is not accepted. Yeah. And I find that I found that in the beginning very weird because you know, where I come from and where you come from, conflict is part of work and it must and my personal idea must be respected and I must be looked at and I of course I'm right and blah blah blah. But in the end I realized that of course nothing is ever so important, you know, in most companies that you can't just say, Hello, okay, let's forget about this, let's move on, let's have a cup of tea together and 
we just want to make sure that everyone's okay. So these kind of things really important here as well. Yeah. Of course, we can say also that there's a negative point to it because in the West, we have a very strong belief that conflict deals with very different opinions that can bring up different ideas and different options. And these contrasts are a benefit yeah, because if we have two people with two different opinions, we have two different options of what we could do. So that's the other side of it, that of course, if ideas here are not confronted too much, you may not always come up with something radically new. Yeah, And that's of course also, in fact, true. Yeah? Radical innovation level is much higher, in, especially in the US, than it is, for example, in Japan. Yeah, Japanese companies have more patents, they have more mass-oriented innovations or incremental innovations, but they usually do not have so many radical innovations as the American companies develop because of that conflict-oriented uh, communication style. So there's pros and cons. Mm -hmm, yeah. Definitely. And have you noticed any changes in recent years in terms of, at least in the States, management styles tend to come in and out of fashion and it changes over time. Have you noticed any things like that in Japan? Yeah, I think what is really interesting is, of course, people do not change. So as I said before, people do not like change very much and people do not change so quickly. But what has changed is, of course, there is there used to be a much more a stronger reliance on older people or basically listening more to older members that's still the case in many companies but it is not as strong as when i first came yeah and one thing is also clear i think in many japanese companies that innovation will not come if you always listen to the most experienced members yeah so that has really changed, not as much as it could have. Of course, as I said before, the discussion style is not very confrontational. So even if you ask younger members, they may not be very confrontational in that sense. But still, that's really different than before. When I first started to work in Japan more than 20 years ago, uh, there was still a lot of older, really old people brought in who retired from some company or some ministry to work, for example, at universities. I remember I worked with 85-year-old people and that was rather common, yeah, because there was this idea that this knowledge is so valuable and they have these connections. That's not so popular anymore because companies have realized once there's one really older member in a team, the rest of the team feels very intimidated of contradicting or coming up with something that is a bit too controversial. So that's one thing. What I also realized in the last years is that the idea, especially among younger Japanese people, of work-life balance has really become more prominent. Yeah, People have, of course, grown up in a wealthy country. They are used to a certain lifestyle and not like their parents and grandparents uh, willing to slave away for 40 years in a company without being recognized. And that has really changed too. That's also having a very strong effect on Japanese companies. Many uh, Japanese companies hire graduates. That's what they usually do and still do. And the number of 30% of these graduates leave the company within the first three years now. And that is very new too. So it actually forces companies to become more attractive, to react more to people's wishes. And because they will in the long run have to be a little bit more adaptive to personal ideas of, of their employees. And that is really new. Before that, it was always the company first and people have to adapt. And lately, there has been, let's say, a lot more attention to how do people want to live? Uh, how can we help them have families? How can we help them 
have a satisfying career or life or something like this. That's really a, a big change. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see how all of that plays out in the future years. Yeah, and as I said, the labor shortage will have a much stronger effect on all levels of Japanese management or management in general than any other movement before. Yeah, because if you don't have enough employees, you must adapt. You must do something, and companies have to try to become more attractive in the long run uh, to attract the right people. Yeah, and that will. This will need changes. Yeah, this demands a different approach. Does a specific example come to mind of a communication breakdown that you've experienced in your professional or personal life in Japan that you think was due to cultural differences? I mean, these kind of things happen everywhere all the time. I think I have so many little experiences here that I wouldn't really. <laughs> remember but what i find for example very interesting is uh how people for example say no or not say no that's a very important factor and i've talked about this with really many people this is a very important difference how communication differences can actually affect how people interact yeah as i said before if you do confrontational it's not a good idea and a no is seen as very confrontational this is actually a much more emotional message here in japan than it would be in the west where simply saying i have a different opinion or i do something else or whatever and that's of course a very classic idea so saying no to people directly is not a good thing and even for me <laughs> i've been in japan so long if i ask somebody back home can you do that or can you come and visit and people say no it's like oh okay i'm sometimes feeling also a little bit yeah you don't have to be this direct yeah but um it is in some ways something you can change actually yeah just not use the word no and saying hmm, maybe i'm busy or maybe we can do it somewhere else or something like this kind of disguising these things yeah and this offends people a lot, yeah. So if you're too harsh and you come across as too rough, it intimidates people and they don't want to speak with you anymore. They they feel stressed when they speak to you. And this is of course having a very negative effect. Yeah. In some companies where I do a lot of trainings in Tokyo, in some companies, what I mainly do is really try to smoothen the interaction between usually Europeans and Japanese people. And it's sometimes really amazing how difficult it is to understand the other side yeah and how many conflicts are based on that yeah and you need to have a very special approach to smoothen this and try to make sure people can actually speak to each other yeah yeah definitely so is there anything else that you would advise somebody to learn about japan before coming to japan for business if they were a complete novice had no idea about anything related to the culture or the language yeah i think i mean reading something about it is never wrong <laughs> that's definitely a good idea i mean there's so much literature now than there was when i first came but it is really important to understand that things are different. It doesn't look so different maybe in the first place, but the idea of how people live their lives and what attitudes they have is very different. And there needs to be a certain understanding or, under, or let's say acceptance of that. Yeah. 
I think it's a lot different than it used to be because, as I said, people have seen much more, they've learned much more, they've read much more, they do prepare before they come. And what what is not easy to prepare is this emotional reaction to things that happen. Yeah, If something goes wrong or you do something and people don't react the way you like it, you have strong feelings, you have feelings of stress, of anger, of sadness, whatever. And I think this is the biggest problem that people are not really prepared for this. Yeah, and I teach a lot of cross-cultural management courses too. I haven't found anything in the literature that actually talks about these emotions. Yeah, that uh, and of course in the in a work setting it's different than let's say in a university setting. Yeah, my students always say yes, it's not so important. I said yeah, it is not so important if you are a student and maybe you don't get the grade you like or you do, but if you're in a company and your career and your family and whatever depends on this job, it is really very, very stressful if you make a mistake and especially if you don't know why. So these kind of feelings need to be managed. That's for me one of the most important things. That's what the scientific literature is pretty much ignoring. So what we what people need to learn when they come here and they have cross-cultural experience and these experiences come with strong emotions, you need to develop some kind of mindset or idea on how to calm yourself down or step out of it and say, okay, today I'm done with this, tomorrow I'll find a problem or just dealing with these things without letting them take over. And that I find is the most important thing because it will happen to everybody in any cross-cultural setting, not only here in Japan or wherever, that you will have these stress feelings. Yeah, I remember when I worked in Germany, I worked in Munich, which is 500 kilometers from my hometown, and I thought this can't be so different. And it was so stressful. I had a bigger culture shock than coming to Japan. And I, at some point I even cried because it was so stressful. And I realized, you see, you really have to kind of manage these emotions and say, okay, this is happening now. I'm trying to get control over this situation by calming myself down, by saying something, okay, this is what happened. Let's try to find a solution and go for that. And I think this is the most important thing yeah, because people are always very surprised how emotional things can get in these settings, and they do. Yeah, even after many years, it's still <laughs> it's still happening. So this is not really uh, an easy thing to solve. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's so easy to forget how personal and intrinsic to your identity culture can be. So I can see how it would be so stressful having that challenged constantly and in ways you don't expect. Yeah, and especially in a company where you have to perform, you see. If you go on holiday and things don't work and you have to wait half an hour for something, fine. Yeah. But if you need to kind of deliver and then you see, okay, people are not doing what I need them to do or they do it tomorrow in 10 days or whatever, then of course something is at stake and you feel a lot more engaged than when you're on a beach and your pina colada is half an hour late or something like that, you see. So these kind of things are really important. And yeah, this emotional preparation, I mean, can't really be done, but it might be really a good idea. So when you're in this situation to learn how to deal with these feelings and develop some processes for yourself saying, okay, I take care of myself first now and my emotions and afterwards I find a solution for the problem. So thank you so much for sharing your time today. I really got a lot out of today's conversation, but is there anything that we didn't get to address or anything you wish we had been able to speak a little bit more about today? No, in fact, I mean, this was really interesting. I, I haven't really talked only about cultural aspects for a long time. What I really want to say uh, is to everyone who wants to come to Japan and work in Japan, it is really a great experience. And for me, I have to say Japan is, 
I, of course, I was socialized in a in a Western society. Even though I have an uh, Iranian father, I, I had some understanding of Asian mentality and mindset. But I found it really very interesting to work in a in an environment where the value system and everything is so different from mine. So it's actually complementary. And you can't find as a Westerner any other system that is so different. So the challenges are really very, very big. However, the learning effect is also very big. So working in this kind of different setting allows you to develop a lot faster as a manager, also as a person. And that's really a very, very good way to shape yourself up and become a very good international manager. So I can only advise everybody to try to work in a very different environment, whether it's foreigner in Japan or Japanese people outside of Japan, because this is really a kind of booster of your career development or your management skill development because you always develop faster in a foreign system or in an outside system. And there is no bigger difference between the Western system and the Japanese system. So this is a really good way to go, though it is not easy. Right. You can never clearly see your own cultural context unless you're in a different one. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I hope that you had a good time and I'm really excited to share it with my audience. Thank you. that you enjoyed today's conversation. If you'd like to learn more about Professor Parisa Hagirian and her work, be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, please check out my link to the show's coffee page to keep me well-caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. I'd love to hear from you directly. So if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find a link to do that in the description as well. But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo.